All right, guys, the Shady Rays Memorial Day sale is live. Go to ShadyRays.com and get 35% off all sunglasses. Try for yourself the shades rated five stars by over 250,000 people. Shady Rays always has your back. Shady Rays offers the most insane protection in all of eyewear. Every pair of sunglasses is backed by lost and broken replacements, meaning that if you lose or break your pair of sunglasses, even on day one, Shady Rays will send you a brand new pair of sunglasses, no questions asked. You can wear your Shady Rays with confidence because Shady Rays has your back long after your purchase. Take advantage of the Shady Rays Memorial Day sale. Go to ShadyRays.com and get 35% off all sunglasses. Shady Rays, look good and feel good. And away we go, episode 581 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Friday, May 26th. 2023, and do we in the NBA playoffs maybe possibly have an Eastern Conference Finals that is back on? The eight seeded Miami Heat has gone from being up on the two seeded Boston Celtics 3 0 to now being up on the Celtics 3 2. Thursday night, the Celtics beat the Heat 110 97 to force a game six. No NBA team has ever come from down 3-0 in a playoff series to win that series, but coming back from down 3-0 to win a playoff series has happened in MLB and in the NHL, perhaps most famously by the 2004 World Series champion Boston Red Sox, who won the American League Championship Series against the New York Yankees, despite having been down in that series 3-0. Can Boston pull off Another miracle. Uh, Boston, the city from which we got our NFL team. Never forget that. Uh, The team was the Boston Braves, then became the Boston Redskins, then became the Washington Redskins, and then became the Washington football team, and now is the Washington Commanders, but we don't need to go through all of that. Uh, Hello and welcome to this Friday installment of the Al Galdi podcast, the only Washington DC Sports Podcast or show for which there is a new episode each weekday, Monday through Friday, with each episode out oh so early each weekday morning. There will be a show for this coming Monday, despite it being Memorial Day, so be on the lookout for Monday's show. This is the show that wakes up with you. This is the show that follows Washington, D.C. area sports so that you don't have to. Following sports is work. You have enough on your plate. Let us do the work that is following sports for you. Uh, Next segment, a special guest, Brent, who is at Burgundy Blog on Twitter. Uh, If you are a Commanders fan and you are on Twitter, uh, well, first of all, God help you, okay? (laughs) But second of all, Burgundy Blog has over the years gained a significant following. It really was one of the first Skins fan accounts on Twitter to become a big deal. Uh, Heck, Burgundy Blog may even be the first Skins fan account on Twitter to become a big deal. Uh, Burgundy Blog provides a smart commentary on the team. Uh, He has had intel on the team. It was Burgundy Blog who first told us about the difficulties that 
then-skins quarterback Alex Smith was having off his broken right leg that he uh, famously suffered in November 2018. Now, if you follow Burgundy Blog on Twitter, you know that he in recent years has come and gone on Twitter. Uh, he is someone who grew especially fed up with the team over the ineptitude that uh, we have come to know over Dan Snyder's 24 years of ownership of the team. But as you may have heard, Dan is selling the team. And so Burgundy Blog is back in effect. He has a lot to say. And so I wanted to have him on the podcast for the first time since episode seven of this podcast. Brent, the man who is at Burgundy Blog on Twitter, is back on the podcast. Uh, Also on the show, Uh, We'll discuss Michael Winger now officially being the president of Monumental Basketball. We, on Thursday afternoon, got the official announcement, and we now know more about what's going on here. Uh, There is something about this hiring that, if you're like me and are a long-suffering Bullet-slash-Wizards fan, uh, is especially encouraging. I'm going to get to that and more. Uh, We have a bonkers Nationals game to talk about. The Nats on Thursday overcame a 5-1 seventh inning deficit with a five-run seventh, but then blew a 6-5 ninth inning lead. The result, an 8-6 loss to the San Diego Padres at Nationals Park. So much to get into with this game, including reliever Hunter Harvey with a big-time blown save for a second time in 10 days. And we have yet another Orioles win to celebrate a 3-1 win at the New York Yankees on Thursday night. Starting pitcher Kyle Gibson, seven scoreless innings. The O's are rolling, second best record in the majors. The O's since their 4-5 start are 29-12. and You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Lots of feedback on Commander's Edge defender Chase Young not attending the team's OTA practices on at least Tuesday and Wednesday. Uh, The team had another practice on Thursday. That practice was closed to the media. Uh, Remember, Edge defender Montez Sweat and left tackle Charles Leno Jr. also did not attend the team's OTA practices on Tuesday and Wednesday. But as I talked about on Thursday's show, episode 580, uh, Montez and Charles, in my opinion, uh, are entitled to a benefit of the doubt that Chase is not entitled to give and how his last two seasons have gone. Email from Dan in Minnesota writes, Dan, every year this team's fans get together to lose their minds about who goes to OTAs and who does not. For the life of me, I don't get it. But on Thursday, while I was entirely focused on a Zoom meeting that could have been an email, I had a thought. I think that people are so polarized about these OTAs because we all want to see these guys play the game how we would play the game. If you chase the bag, you have no problem with people who miss time in the pursuit of money. If you chase the legacy, you can't understand how anyone would do anything other than what it takes to be the best. As with most things, I fall somewhere in the middle. I appreciate that these men lay it all on the line for our entertainment, and I think that they deserve to be compensated for that. But I remember the great ones, not the paid ones. I just don't think that Chase Young loves football, and people just want him to say it, I guess. I don't know what it would change. Leno and Sweat have shown that they are going to be there for the team. That's why nobody cares about their reasons for sitting out. Uh, Thank you for the email, Dan. Well, I don't know if Chase Young loves football or not. We don't know specifically why he has not attended these OTA practices this week. Uh, Perhaps the next time that Chase speaks publicly, he'll give a reason for not attending 
the OTA practices that make sense. But what I do know are a few things. A, Chase Young has not had a good season since his rookie season. And that reality is not just about his badly torn right knee. Uh, Chase in the 2021 season prior to getting injured was having a very disappointing season. B, uh, Chase just got dissed in not having the fifth-year option in his rookie contract picked up. You can dress that up however you want, but that is a diss. Uh, That is an indictment of how his NFL career is going so far, despite him having been taken with the number two overall pick in the 2020 NFL draft. And see, the commanders this offseason only have a total of seven OTA practices. That's it, seven. So you put all of that together, and to me, it's not some huge ask for Chase Young to be attending these OTA practices, nor is it unreasonable to be disappointed that he isn't attending these OTA practices. Now, that said, him not attending these OTA practices does not preclude him from having a great 2023 season, and I hope like heck that he does have a great 2023 season. Uh, Email from Jack L. writes, Jack, my theory about Chase Young is that the team really soured on Chase when he chose to not play in the huge Sunday night game against the Giants, while the coaching staff was thinking that he would play in that game and was counting on him to play in that game. And not just because of what he might do on the field, but also for the emotional boost that him playing would have brought to the team and to the fans. Perhaps a bit of a Willis Reed type moment. Hope that that was not before your time. Uh, It was, Jack, but I know what you're talking about. Continues, Jack. To me, the team was flat for that game. In my opinion, Ron Rivera and his staff were miffed by Chase not playing in that game. And that combined with Chase's previous OTA no-shows has led the team to seriously question his commitment to the Durs. Uh, Al, your podcast is with me every pod day. Thank you for doing your top-notch podcast and for being a big part of my source for sports information. Well, thank you very much for that, Jack. Uh, Interesting theory, uh, a theory that to me is worth considering. Uh, Week 15 of this past season, uh, the Commanders fell to 7-6-1 with a 2012 loss to the New York Giants at FedEx Field on Sunday Night Football. A brutal loss. It was part of the Commanders going 0-3-1 from weeks 13 through 17. This was the final game that Chase missed. Uh, Chase, in the 2022 regular season, played in just three of the Commander's 17 games. He was on the reserve slash physically unable to perform list from August 23rd to November 21st due to the right knee, and he then was inactive for three consecutive games before playing in each of the Commander's final three games, and the last of the three straight games for which he was inactive was that loss to the Giants on Sunday night football. It was odd and frustrating that Chase took so long to finally make his season debut last season, and it is true that Ron Rivera very much talked about Chase needing to have more confidence in the right knee uh, as a reason for him taking so long to make his season debut. So it is possible that Ron and his staff uh, were disappointed in Chase not playing in that loss to the Giants on Sunday Night Football. Although keep in mind that the commander's defense was not why the commanders lost that game, okay? The offense was. The commander's defense in that game was good. The commanders in that game held the Giants' offense to just 13 points. The Giants' other seven points came uh, on edge defender Kayvon Thibodeau's early second quarter one-yard fumble return for a touchdown off his sack strip at Taylor Heineke. Uh, the commanders in that game held the Giants to just a 2 of 10 on third downs and just 4.65 yards per play. The commanders' offense in that game went just 1 of 10 on third downs and scored just 12 points. And Taylor Heineke, our guy Tay-Tay, 
Uh, he in that game had two lost fumbles on sack strips and nearly threw a game-clinching interception. And Chase Young, when he did finally play last season, actually was pretty good. So it may be that his return, as long as it took to happen, uh, was handled just fine given the situation. I mean, Chase, over his three games, registered an overall grade for pro football focus of 78.4. Uh, PFF grades are on a scale of zero to a hundred. Well, if we had to assign a PFF grade to the law firm of Paulson and Nace, uh, the grade would be a hundred. If you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. Founded in 1979, Paulson and Nace is dedicated to promoting the rights of seriously injured persons and their families. You can call Paulson and Nace at 202-902-7611. And when you call, make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Paulson and Nace handles medical malpractice, personal injury, birth injury, legal malpractice, and consumer protection cases offering aggressive advocacy for victims in Washington, D.C. and West Virginia. Paulson and Nace is widely respected throughout Washington, D.C. and West Virginia for the firm's accomplishments both in and out of courtrooms. Chris Nace and Matt Nace are dedicated trial attorneys who do not balk in the face of large insurance companies or well-known businesses that have had practices or products that are directly related to the root of your harm. And by the way, a big congratulations to Chris Nace, who was just named the 2023 Barry J. Nace Trial Lawyer of the Year. Uh, this by the D.C. Trial Lawyers Association. Paulson and Nace does not accept Low settlement offers that benefit the people who cause clients harm more than the offers benefit the clients. And this is because Paulson and Nace is not afraid to take a case to trial. And that's because Paulson and Nace wins trials. Paulson and Nace has secured millions of dollars in verdict and settlement amounts for clients to better enable them to care for themselves and their families. If you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. Call 202-902-7611. That's 202-902-7611. Make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. You could also visit paulsonandnace.com. That's paulsonandnace.com. Just make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Paulson and Nace, if you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. All right, so Thursday was May 25th, the 24-year anniversary of Dan Snyder's purchase of the Redskins being finalized. You might call Thursday the Daniversary. Uh, it was on May 25th. 1999, that NFL owners voted unanimously to approve the sale of the skins to a group led by a 34-year-old named Daniel M. Snyder. And here we are now, 24 years later, waiting on NFL owners to approve Dan's sale of the team to the Josh Harris group. Uh, as much as that approval can't come soon enough, it still is amazing to me that we have gotten to this point of Dan Snyder actually truly selling the team. The hope that is being restored for fans of this team via Dan selling the team really cannot be overstated. And so I'm very pleased to welcome back to the Al Galdi podcast right now, someone who I know is as thrilled as anyone that Dan is selling the team. He is Brent, aka Burgundy Blog on Twitter. Uh, he is mysterious. He, for the most part, operates in anonymity, but he is one of the smartest, most insightful people when it comes uh, to opining on the commanders. Uh, Brent, it's very nice to talk to you. How are you? I'm great. It's good to talk to you too, Al. I'm a regular listener of the Al Galdi show. And um, 
And you're right. I'm, I'm, I'm very, very pumped. It's, um, even now, even, even, uh, these many months after the whole process of the sales started becoming to, to started to look possible and is, is now hopefully imminent. Um, hard to even believe that it's actually happening, but it's certainly awesome. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, no question about that. So you, like a lot of fans of our team, uh, had a lot of your fandom taken away by everything that has happened during the Dan Snyder era. Uh, to what extent would you say that Dan selling the team is restoring your fandom? Um, I mean, I guess leaving sort of like an outside, um, uh, you know, openness to the possibility that, that Harris and, and his partners are flops, which I, I don't anticipate at all from, you know, a little bit of um, research, uh, you know, I've done and, and we've all done together so far on them. I mean, it's everything. It's a total game changer in terms of my interest in and enthusiasm for the team. I mean, I had I had reached a point um, in, in my uh, volatile relationship with the Redskins and then briefly the Washington football team and, and now the commanders where, uh, you know, every, every day, every week, every season was like just sort of a question. I would wrestle with the, with the idea of, are, are they worth my time? Are they worth my attention, uh, my consideration, my emotion? And, you know, increasingly in recent years, the answer was not often. Yes. I mean, I'm like I'm like any other fan who's got a life, and and in life you have competing priorities. And no matter how much you might love the sport of football or or you know the team, the franchise itself, you know we all have conflicts of interest in terms of time and attention. And there was there was just this uh, sense of futility with like almost everything on and off the field with the organization for so long. And I found myself you know, starting several years ago, just really questioning whether it, it was, it was worth it. Um, but now I think, although obviously, uh, as, as you've, I think, um, you know, been careful to note in your discussions of this issue on the podcast, you know, having a new owner in Harris and, and this big group is, is hardly, in fact, very from a get very far from a guarantee that things will suddenly become great either on or off the field. It's not a promise, but what it does to me is change the whole um, scenario to where, you know, success and, and something that I'm watching on TV and hearing about on the radio and pods or whatever it, it, there, there is a possibility now that it could be something worthwhile and redeeming. And, you know, I always hesitate to use the word proud of, cause I just, I think that the con the concept of a fan being proud of his team, sometimes a little bit of a stretch when I'm not contributing in any way to, you know, what, what's going on there. But, um, there's a chance now, you know, it's not, it's, it's not doomed. Um, and there was this feeling of doom and I think that's gone. So, uh, very long winded, answer to your simple question of, of how much does it change. But I mean, it just it changes completely everything. Of course, the person who from the get-go of the sale of the commanders was viewed as a favorite to buy the team uh, was Amazon founder Jeff Bezos. And he, of course, ended up not even bidding on the team. Uh, did you want Bezos to buy the commanders? Like if you could wave a magic wand and make it so that Bezos and not Josh Harris was buying the team, would you do that? Or are you, in fact, happy that Josh Harris is the person buying the team? Well, I guess, um, you know, I would say, first of all, 
I, I, it's, it's so, it's so hard for a, just a normal person to know who's going to do a better job here. I mean, the key difference, I guess, well, I guess the two, the two being, you know, Bezos's money, just, just exponentially uh, more and therefore, you know, maybe more resources to throw at things. Um, but then too, just the, the degree of, uh, experience with, um, you know, pro sports ownership, which Paris obviously has lots of and Bezos has none of. So I, I guess I, I would say, you know, going through the process, I was kind of just sort of like quietly rooting for Bezos. Just, I don't know, for sort of the, um, yeah, the, the, the profile, you know, the, 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 the pizzazz, the, the, um, cachet, um, and the idea that, you know, who knows what he would do, but then, you know, he, he might, you know, put a, uh, practice facility on the moon, you know? Um, but there, there's no, there's no certainty that if, and when he does buy teams, let's say it's the Seahawks that he's gonna, I mean, you know, you, you can, you can get it, you can get yourself into trouble with, uh, too, too much, too much resources, you know, in, in some ways in this, I think. And, um, I, so as, as I learn more about Harris and rails and the idea of the, of this group coming in together and, you know, what their philosophies and their other businesses and projects. I mean, I definitely have come around to thinking that this is a, this is a not, not just an escape for us from Snyder. I think that, I think that this is probably better than just a neutral escape. I mean, I think I'm, I'm pretty, pretty confident that Harris is not going to come in and just, uh, you know, keep the status quo or totally flop or be in over his head or out of his league or whatever. I mean, he, he's, he's built two crappy teams in other leagues back, back to, if not championship level, then, uh, you know, more than respectability. And, um, yeah, so, so I'm, I'm, I'm more than just okay with it. I think I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty excited with who, who it, it ended up being. I want to get your takes on some popular topics in terms of ramifications from the sale of the commanders. Uh, what do you think that Josh Harris should do with uh, our team president, Jason Wright? <laughs> um, so he, you know, it, it, it kind of seems as as we've all sort of tried to get to know him and his habits and, and style for um, team ownership that um, I do, it, I do sort of sense that with the devils and 76ers, he's operated with a certain sense of, um, urgency, uh, but not, not impatience. And so I guess I would say that I'm, I'm not, be it on the football side or the business side, I'm not really expecting, you know, uh, red wedding or anything like right when he steps in. Um, I kind of have a feeling he's, he's going to like take his time and, and, and not, not make huge waves right away. As for Wright himself, I mean, I don't know. I, I'm kind of mixed on him. I mean, um, mainly because we all know he walked into just such a, such a disaster, right? Like, I mean, he just walked and the house was completely on fire and flooding when he walked in. And so he's, um, he hasn't, done everything right or come off perfectly every time he's had a microphone and, and they've had, they've had issues with a number of events, you know, like at the stadium, the Sean Taylor stuff. And I mean, personally separate issue, but I think the rebrand was a pretty big failure. Um, I, I, I think that I, I would say, I, I doubt that Jason Wright is really long for the organization, but it's not so much because I think he's horrible. I just think that Harris is coming in fresh start. His goal clearly will be to turn everything around as much as possible you know, as, as possible and to make this thing into a rousing success. And so if he has 
no pre-existing like loyalty to affiliation with association with Jason Wright. And as far as I'm, I'm aware he doesn't, then, you know, I don't, I don't see really why he would lean any more towards him than like anyone else on the planet. You know what I mean? And there's just so many people out there that he might already be considering or already have trust in or confidence in. And the idea that he would come in and give Jason Wright a little bit of like a tryout and, um, and then conclude that, Oh yeah, sure enough. We already have the exact perfect person that fits me already here. I mean, what are the odds? It's like pretty much zero, right? If you look at it that way. So I doubt, I doubt he's a long timer. Um, I don't think he's been a complete failure, but uh, I, I just I think probably eventually, you know, within a season or two, uh, Harris will have rebuilt this whole thing in his image. All right. You, in your last answer, use the R word, not Redskins, but rebrand. Uh, that has come up. <laughs> <laughs> that has come up a ton, of course. Uh, I take it that you believe that Josh Harris should do away with the name Commanders. I mean, I, I'm rooting for him uh, to do that because I hate commanders. But you know, and I and I get that you know, there's there's sort of again separate separate thing of you know, should he or or, or uh, do, do I want him to, and and do I think he will or can or whatever, right? I mean, it's it's there's there's it's separate issues whether it's feasible. And I mean, I I have no idea whether it's like logistically feasible to do it again so soon. I mean, I know there's a lot that goes into it. I think it's a crappy name. I think it's a mouthful. I think it has no meaning at all. I mean, it has no sort of tie to any kind of the history of the team or to the, I mean, I guess you could say maybe there's some like, like a loose military tie there and DC area and whatever. But, um, I just think the name sucks. You can't shorten it. That's a huge thing for me. I have, I think, I think it's gotta be something you can say easily. And, um, it just feels unbelievably sterile and has no no personality, no um, uniqueness to me. So I, again, I, I hate the name um, so much, and so yeah, I obviously want him to change it. Do I think it's going to be his first order of business? Absolutely not. Um, but do I think that they should be thinking about it? I mean, I can't imagine they wouldn't be. That's a huge part of the brand. It is very fresh. There's really no, uh, I mean, nobody nobody is attached to it. The, the, the people who you know, the, the people who are highest on commanders and this whole new brand are only at best okay with it. I mean, do you disagree? Like nobody's like, what a great choice. This is so fabulous. It represents me. So they should be reviewing it. But I think it'll probably take time. And I guess if you if you made me. Um, if you if I if I had to predict or put money on whether it would change or not, I, I think sadly I would say it's probably likely not to, just because it is it is a big lift. And if they do anything positive in these next couple of years before he even gets around around to it, then I think enough people will just be sort of like okay or complacent with it that you know it'll it'll just stick. You're absolutely right in that nobody has some strong attachment to commanders. Personally, I don't hate commanders, but I totally understand those who do hate that name. What I always come back to, though, is that there is no perfect new name. Uh, There is no obvious new name that the team should have gotten with. Every new name was going to be flawed in some way. And save for going back to Redskins, and we know how unlikely that is, there is no other name that Josh Harris could rebrand to, to where there all of a sudden would be this widespread acceptance of the new name. Yeah, I think that's fair. And, you know, there's, there's a couple that I, I would like clearly prefer, but I hesitate to throw them out either on Twitter or even here. Cause it's like, obviously you got to have a million people come out. And so you're a total moron. That's even worse. And, and, and nothing is going to please 
everyone. Uh, I just think that they landed on one of the worst options. <laughs> We're talking commanders with Brent, a.k.a. Burgundy Blog on Twitter. All right, to the football. Uh, our head coach in the coach-centric approach, Rod Rivera. Uh, are you done with him? Uh, do you still have hope for him as Washington head coach? Where are you with Ron? Well, I have hardly ruled out the possibility that he could put together uh, a fun and, and overall successful season, even this season. I mean, I don't think he's a nincompoop, but uh, in general, I, I'm pretty much out on him or over uh, over him because um, I I just I just feel like and 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 you know all the standard all standard th- you know compliments um, are, are are applicable. He he is clearly a good guy. He's a tough guy. He's um, uh, capable of of galvanizing a team and leading men. But I I personally feel and I know it's it, this is you know just one of those kind of maybe sort of painful things for a fan to say to, to act like he knows even a fraction as much about football as as this guy who's made it his whole life. But uh, in my view, it seems like tactically, both in terms of um, roster management and um, uh, you know, just especially in-game coaching, um, I, I think he's overmatched by the best coaches in the league. I just don't think he's a top guy. Uh, I don't have a lot of confidence that he is, you know, innovative enough and adaptive enough to move this team into a place where, you know, season in and season out, they are, um, you know, lo- looking down at the rest. I just, I just, I'm not really seeing it. He, um, you know, as, as you also have done a great job of chronicling uh, daily on, on your pod, I mean, the guy just changes his mind constantly. And, and it's, it's, I, I don't think it's for lack of starting with a plan. I mean, I think he's, I think he's learned and he's trying to, to make plans, but he just, I mean, when, when, when things don't pan out you know it seems like he changes on a whim he contradicts himself almost every other time he's up at the at the podium and um you know i just i think he was a good a good choice to sort of stabilize the franchise and um and they needed that for sure i mean when he was hired they were in desperate need of somebody to like shepherd them out of just you know out of or through chaos which unfortunately continued even even in you know through his tenure so he is he like jason wright has had an incredibly um uh stacked deck against him but um i you know i i think i think he i think he stabilized the team in terms of like character um but i don't view him as um uh, as as having just this football mind to to like lead them, um, you know, in, in, into a place where other teams are jealous. The NFL, as we all know, has become a league of head coaches who are young and who have offensive backgrounds. And the Commanders and Rod Rivera have a head coach who is older and who has a defensive background. Doesn't mean that he's doomed to failure, but for me, it is hard to ignore that uh, our team with its head coach is very much going against the grain of the current NFL. Uh, When it comes to Sam Howell as the team's possible slash likely starting quarterback, for this coming season, would you say that you are more excited or skeptical? Well, um, I am both at the same time. If you made me choose one, I, I think um, people won't like to hear me say I, I lean a little more towards skeptical. But I, I will say this: going back to draft day, 
Um, I was, you know, as thrilled as anyone that they picked him there in the fifth round. I mean, that was, that was uh, to, to me obvious. I mean, I was thinking it before they, before they turned that card in, that it should be him right here. I was probably started thinking about it a round or two before that. But, um, you know, it, it was good that they got him. And I think that, you know, um, a lot has been said and, and you have, have covered, uh, even, even recently the, the idea that he's not your typical fifth rounder. And so I'm not, I'm not like committing him to mediocrity because he was a day three pick because yeah, he's, he's not, he's not your average fifth round pick having been very high profile just a year before. Um, he, he had, he has a, a great pedigree and he's got a lot of traits. And to this day, I think it's a little mysterious as to why he slipped so far. Um, I do think though that that um, that makes me a little bit um, it makes me have more hope for him than I would a typical fifth rounder, but not not so much more confidence. I mean, it is still the, the case that for whatever reason, every team had a bunch of cracks at him and they didn't and and they passed. So there's something there that I think we probably don't know about. And then you know you come in and. Um, you know, he he certainly didn't didn't. It wasn't like a Russell Wilson situation where he shows up and everyone says, "Oh my God, I can't believe this guy fell into our lap. He's clearly a gem." Um, you know, let's let's toss aside who was it that the Seahawks had at that time, Matt Flynn or whatever. They had just signed him to a big contract. If it had been a deal like that where he just took him by storm and forced their hand, okay, well, hey, let's do it. But that didn't quite happen. You know, there was a lot of stuff about well, he's kind of raw. He needs some development. There's the footwork thing. You know, the the, the team went through a season where they they were hardly getting stellar quarterback play and he still failed to crack the lineup until, you know, Rivera was almost forced to by basically mutiny, you know, at the, in the final game. So no matter how much they tell us now that they're all in and they fully believe, I still feel it's a little bit more hope than confidence. So that being said, I mean, uh, he's, he's got a good arm. He seems to have a good head on his shoulders. His teammates like him. He seems very tough. He's mobile. I mean, he's got like a whole bunch of these things that you want your quarterback to have. So I don't think there's necessarily a reason he can't pan out. Uh, I just think it's premature to like assume it or expect it to the degree that I feel like I'm seeing on Twitter. There, of course, is a new offensive coordinator for the Commanders. Uh, they, in January, fired Scott Turner. They, in February, hired Eric Bieniemy as assistant head coach slash offensive coordinator. Do you think that it's realistic to think that Eric Bieniemy can take an offense that has been bad for each of the last five seasons and make it good? I think it's realistic, um, but I'm, you know... Again, I'm 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 not banking on it. Um, it's going to be, I think, a very big change in terms of his style and philosophy and motion and just the, the way the way this offense uh, you know looks and operates play to play. I think it's going to just be starkly different, which is fun. It's cool. It's interesting, and um, and that that's going to keep our attention. Um, you know, I think he's got a quarterback who's like a total question mark. I think he's got an offensive line that, in my opinion, did not did not get fixed enough. And then, you know, everybody really, aside from what, you know, Wiley is, is like new, new to the system. So to think that they're just going to hit the ground running and be awesome. I mean, I don't know. That's, that's kind of a reach. Um, I'm not ruling it out. I mean, the guy just, you couldn't have asked for any better success than he had in his last stop. So like, I don't know why anyone would limit him. Uh, but I'm, I'm, if I'm optimistic, it's cautiously. And last one for you. A lot of talk uh, these last few days about Chase Young off him not attending these OTA practices this week. Uh, the team this offseason, of course, chose to not exercise the fifth-year option in Chase's rookie contract. 
are we in fact witnessing the end of Chase's time with Washington? Like, is this just not going to work? Or do you feel like there is at least a decent chance that Chase with Washington does become the great edge defender he was drafted to be? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I would say first of all, uh, interestingly, although I'm, although I'm, I don't, I'm, I'm probably um, a little bit less bullish on on the, the the whole team this season and and the the prospects for playoffs and the record and whatever. Somehow, I think I'm a little higher on Chase Young and what I think he's going to do this year than most, at least as as I as I glean from social media. I mean, I. I, I I have just still not forgotten what this guy was coming out and what he was as a rookie, and I I think that at his best and he he may never you know his ceiling was probably adjusted by this pretty pretty major injury that he had, uh, but ninety five percent of what he was going to be would still be among the best in the league, and I think that if if he is properly motivated and if he has figured out how to avoid. Um, you know the, the the change that he seemed to have made going into his second year, where he was like dancing a little bit more than just just rushing. Um, if he figures it out, I think he's going to be awesome. And if he's awesome, obviously the team's not going to want him to go anywhere. And I do think that it, it feels like there's you know he and Rivera are just not on the same page about a number of things. So I mean that could factor into it. But no, I, I actually think he's I, I think he's going to have a good year, and then I think that they're going to try to keep him. But but then it's, you know it's going to get dicey. Cause it's like, you gotta, are you going to pay sweat? And, you know, most, most of the, most of the people who are most plugged in lately seem to think that the team uh, behind closed doors is like more, more into sweat, talking more about paying him. Uh, yeah. They're going to find themselves in, a, in themselves in a, in a position where they have to make some decisions. But um, particularly if Rivera either like, you know, gets fired or steps down or hands it off to the enemy or something like that. Um, you know, if, if that's, if, if his relationship with Chase Young is no longer an impediment to, to Chase's long-term plans, I mean, that, that would, would open the door, the, the, the crack a little further on its own. Uh, but I'm, I'm not writing it off. I think, I think CY is going to show up this year. I hope you're right. Uh, would be great to see Brent, AKA Burgundy blog on Twitter. By the way, uh, I would love to see this. Uh, I don't think that there's a very good chance of this, but any chance that Burgundy Blog on Twitter will ever use a Commander's fanboy hashtag <laughs> like Take Command or HTTC? Is that possible? Uh, I guess you'll have to stay tuned, but I think, you, I, I think you're on the right track there. <laughs> well, thanks a lot for your time, man. I appreciate it and all the best to you. Thanks, Al. You're great. See ya. All right. Burgundy Blog, one of the best follows on Twitter if you are a Commanders fan. Hope that you enjoyed our conversation. If you have like 20 seconds, please consider rating and reviewing this podcast. You on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify can rate the podcast. Five-star ratings are very much appreciated. And you on Apple Podcasts can write a review saying that you like the podcast. The review doesn't have to be long. Uh, It can be just a sentence or two. Uh, The ratings and the reviews help out the podcast a lot. So, Thank you very much for doing them. And here is a thank you to you for doing them. A great deal for some great Shady Rays sunglasses. Shady Rays Memorial Day sale is live. Go to ShadyRays.com and get 35% off all sunglasses. Try for yourself the shades rated five stars by over 250,000 people. Shady Rays sunglasses, they look good, they feel good. Shady Rays is an independent sunglasses company that offers a world-class product that's affordable and durable with clear optics for whatever you're doing outside. Take on the sun with gear 
that is built to last. Uh, Shady Rays has you covered for the warm weather ahead with premium polarized shades at an affordable price. And Shady Rays offers the most insane protection in all of eyewear. Every pair of sunglasses is backed by lost and broken replacements, meaning that if you lose or break your pair of sunglasses, even on day one, Shady Rays will send you a brand new pair of sunglasses. No questions asked. You can wear your Shady Rays with confidence because Shady Rays has your back long after your purchase. Take advantage of Shady Rays Memorial Day Sale. Go to ShadyRays.com and get 35% of all sunglasses, and know that Shady Rays always has your back. If you don't love your Shady Rays sunglasses, you can exchange them for sunglasses that you do love, or you can return your sunglasses for a full refund within 30 days. There's no risk when you shop with Shady Rays, and Shady Rays is providing much-needed support to nonprofit partners across the U.S. through Shady Rays Impact. Shady Rays, look good and feel good. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, so it now is official. Uh, Michael Winger is the president of Monumental Basketball. Uh, He looks a lot like our former commander's quarterback, Carson Wentz. So let us hope that Michael Winger's time in Washington, D.C. goes better than uh, Commander Carson's time did in D.C. But yeah, Michael Winger now in charge of Wizards basketball operations. Uh, Monumental sports and entertainment founder and CEO Ted Leonsis, he on Thursday afternoon announced that Michael Winger had been named president of Monumental Basketball. The press release announcing the Wizards hiring of Winger said that he will, quote, oversee all aspects of operations for the Washington Wizards, Washington Mystics, and the Capital City Go-Go, end quote. Uh, Winger's credentials are impressive. Uh, He had been the Los Angeles Clippers general manager since July 2017. A winger from July 2010 to July 2017 was Oklahoma City Thunder, assistant general manager, and was part of the team's legal and administration departments. A winger from July 2005 to July 2010 was the Cleveland Cavaliers, director of basketball operations, and was team counsel. Uh, Michael Winger, over his 18 combined seasons as an executive for the Clippers, Thunder, and Cavaliers, totaled two NBA Finals appearances, seven conference finals, Finals appearances and a regular season winning percentage of 633. Not bad. Uh, he went to the University of Maryland Francis King Carey School of Law 
in Baltimore. Now, interestingly, the expectation is that Winger will be hiring a general manager or at least a uh, general manager type for the Wizards. So the structure is going to be Winger overseeing the Wizards, but someone else handling the day-to-day operations and transactions for the Wizards. Uh, A lot of teams in the NBA, the NFL, MOB, and the NHL uh, are set up like this. Heck, Winger with the Clippers was their GM, but the Clippers also have a president of basketball operations in Lawrence Frank. So it'll be interesting to see who Winger hires as Wizards GM. But here is what has me especially excited about Michael Winger as president of Monumental Basketball. He apparently is truly being empowered by Ted Leonsis to do as Winger wants to do with Wizards basketball operations. There have been suspicions for years regarding Winger's two predecessors running Wizards basketball operations, Ernie Grunfeld and Tommy Shepard, in terms of how much of their failures had to do with what they were told to do and not allowed to do by Ted Leonsis. Well, Wizards insider Abel Wallace of the Washington Post on Wednesday night tweeted, quote, This is a powerful role Winger is stepping into. He'll be deciding the broad direction of the team and everything, including a full roster overhaul, is on the table, end quote. Uh, Wizards insider Josh Robbins of The Athletic early Thursday morning tweeted that Winger will, quote, have full authority to remake the Wizards roster, even if it's a rebuild, end quote. And then there's this, uh, the Athletics' David Aldridge. Uh, he has covered the NBA for years. He, in February 2016, was named one of the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame's 2016 Kurt Gowdy Media Award recipients. Uh, Aldridge is a local. He went to DeMatha Catholic High School in Hyattsville, Maryland, and then went to American University. Uh, Aldridge wrote the following in a piece that came out on Thursday morning, quote, Leonsis, the source said, wanted someone who'd take big swings in a big market. It is not a coincidence that Winger has been in Los Angeles the last few years. Leonsis wanted someone who knew how to recruit blue-chip talent to a big city, who had relationships with the game's top agents and agencies like CAA, Excel, and Clutch, and he allowed that there may be a need for fresh eyes on his basketball team, that someone from the outside needed to tell him what he didn't know and what he needed to prioritize. Winger has assurances that Leonsis will go into the luxury tax, if necessary, down the road, end quote. All of this, if true, is great news. Uh, Obviously, time will tell how true all of this is, but it is great news if Ted Leonsis is finally thinking big and is actually, truly empowering Michael Winger to do with the Wizards as he sees fit. The way for the Wizards to escape their four-plus decades of mediocrity is by thinking big and acting big and getting uncomfortable. Uh, I want you to take a listen to something. This was Michael Winger in February 2019 on a stage with uh, Lawrence Frank and Rachel Nichols, who at the time was working for ESPN. Uh, This was a Clippers season ticket holders event. You're going to hear Winger address a big trade that the Clippers had made earlier in that month of February 2019. The trade was with the Philadelphia 76ers, the trade involved the Clippers sending Tobias Harris and Boban Marjanovic to the Sixers. Take a listen. The effort is a lot of the prep, a lot of the planning is to help you be as objective as you can be when it's time to make a decision. So that okay. you're making these decisions based on not necessarily data. I mean, right. data is a part of the process, but 
the objectivity of today, the objectivity of the future, um, against the backdrop of sustainably contending. Um, but emotionally, it's, it's, in many cases, it's really hard, it's gut-wrenching. Um, when we were going back and forth with Philadelphia, and you could sort of feel that there was maybe the, uh, the foundation of a deal in place, I mean, it, it, it was really hard because we have a group of people that, like, we love those guys. And when we're having, you know, conversations in a small group and we're talking about, are we really going to trade Tobias? Are we really going to trade Boban? Are we really going to trade Mike? It's like, <sighs> that's when you sort of, you have to really close your eyes a little bit and think to the future and figure out how you're going to build that, that team that is going to win. And you have to make it really hard on this. They are very emotional, um, viscerally painful decisions. So it was hard. Yeah, so I liked what Michael Winger had to say there. Uh, what he said is how a head of basketball operations should be thinking in today's NBA. And that phrase that he used, quote, sustainably contending, end quote. Sustainably contending. Yes, sustainably contending. Uh, that's a great phrase. And that phrase should be the goal of every GM in every sport, uh, sustainably contending. Uh, the Bullets slash Wizards have not sustainably contended <laughs> in a very long time. Uh, the team has not advanced past the second round of the NBA playoffs since 1979. Uh, the team has not had a 50-win regular season since the 1978-1979 season. I hope like heck that Michael Winger changes those realities, and if he, in fact, is truly being empowered by Ted Leonsis, then Winger at least has a decent shot at changing those realities. So we on Thursday's show, episode 580, talked about the Orioles' incredible eight-run seventh inning in a 9-6 win at the New York Yankees on Wednesday night. Well, the Nationals on Thursday had a five-run seventh inning. The Nats incredibly began that five-run seventh with seven consecutive hits. Uh, the Nats via that five-run seventh overcame a 5-1 seventh inning deficit. But the Nats then blew a 6-5 ninth inning lead. And the result was a brutal 8-6 loss to the San Diego Padres at Nationals Park. Uh, the Nats ended up losing the series two games to one. Uh, the Nats now are 21-29. and 29. What a wild game this was at Nationals Park on Thursday. Uh, let's start with what happened in the ninth inning. But to do that, we must begin in the eighth inning. Uh, so as I have talked about on the show, Nats manager Davey Martinez right now does not have a set closer. Uh, he is alternating between the guys who Davey views as the team's two best relievers, Hunter Harvey and Kyle Finnegan. For the record, I am fine with that approach. Uh, I have a mantra for this topic. Don't be a slave to the save. Uh, a manager should have an ace reliever or ace relievers and should deploy that reliever or those relievers in clutch spots, in what are called high leverage spots. And high leverage spots can occur in ninth innings, in eighth innings, in seventh innings, in sixth innings. But when it comes to Hunter Harvey and Kyle Finnegan, Davey Martinez right now is letting matchups and circumstances dictate who pitches in ninth innings. And again, no problem with that. So the Nats on Thursday had this amazing five-run seventh to take a 6-5 lead. 
Davey then went to Kyle Finnegan to pitch the top of the eighth. This notably was with the bottom three spots in the Padres lineup coming up. Uh, Davey right now does seem to trust Hunter Harvey more than Davey trusts Kyle Finnegan, and I don't blame Davey for that. Finnegan has had a very up and down season. Well, Finnegan on Thursday tossed a scoreless top of the eighth with two strikeouts, although he did give up a leadoff double by Brandon Dixon toward the left field corner. So then Hunter Harvey came into the game. He came in for the top of the ninth. And he allowed three runs in falling to just two for six on saves in this 2023 regular season. Uh, Harvey gave up a leadoff opposite field single by Jake Cronenworth to shallow left center field to conclude an eight-pitch plate appearance. Harvey gave up a single by our friend, the ex-nat Juan Soto, to right field. Uh, Harvey did then record back-to-back strikeouts. He struck out Xander Bogarts on four pitches, and Harvey then struck out Matt Carpenter on four pitches. But then came the big blow, the devastating, oh-so-crushing blow. Harvey gave up a two-out, go-ahead, three-run home run by Rugnet Odor to right field for an 8-6 Padres lead. Rugnet Odor killed the Nats in this series, and he on Thursday got the biggest hit of the series. Uh, what happened with Hunter Harvey on Thursday was reminiscent of what happened just last week, a 5-4 walk-off loss at the Miami Marlins on May 16th. Harvey in that game blew the save chance. Bottom of the ninth, uh, he allowed three runs, recorded just two outs, gave up a two-out walk-off, full count, two-run homer by Jorge Soler to left field for a 5-4 Marlins win. Hunter Harvey overall is having a good season. You know, his whip for this regular season remains under one. Even with these recent blown saves, Hunter Harvey's whip for the 2023 regular season is 0.99. That's really good. But as mentioned, he now is just a two for six on saves. That's uh, not so good. Uh, here was Davey Martinez during his postgame press conference on Thursday evening. It's tough, tough game. I mean, we, you know, but we battled back. I mean, that, that says a lot about our ball club. Man. We battled back and, um, and we get the ball to, to, to Finning and Harvey at the end. I mean, that's what you want to do with the lead, right? It just didn't, didn't work out today. Um, but I'm proud of the way the guys, the guys battle back. Yeah, and speaking of that, uh, that incredible five-run seventh inning by the Nats on Thursday. So like I said, the Nats began that five-run seventh with seven consecutive hits. The Nats in this inning were on fire, and the Padres in this inning were falling apart. Uh, Luis Garcia got things going. He and that Nats five-run seventh had a leadoff single up the middle on an 0-2 pitch. Uh, Garcia on Thursday has an at starting second baseman and number two batter, two for five with two singles. Uh, Joey Manessis in the Nats five-run seventh and an infield single on a ball that went off Padres third baseman Rugnet Odor. Manessis on Thursday has an at starting DH and number three batter, two for five with an RBI single and the infield single. Jamer Candelario, uh, he and that Nats five-run seventh and opposite field RBI double down the right field line. It cut the Nats deficit to five two. Uh, Candelario on Thursday as an at starting third baseman and number four batter, one for four with the RBI double and a hit by pitch. Then Corey Dickerson had the first of two big pinch hits for the Nats in this five-run seventh. A pinch opposite field RBI single through the left side of the infield on a one-two pitch to cut the Nats deficit to 5-3. Then Dominic Smith in the five-run seventh for the Nats, a full count RBI single through the right side of the infield to cut the Nats deficit to 5-4. Smith on Thursday as the Nats starting first baseman and number six batter, two for five with a double in the RBI single. Dominic Smith had two hits in each of the three games in this series. Uh, Then Alex Call in this Nats 
five-run seventh, a first-pitch bunt single that led to a run-scoring throwing error by Padres reliever Nick Martinez to tie the game at five. Like I said, the Padres were falling apart. Uh, Cole's bunt was perfectly placed toward third base. Uh, Now, Alex Cole did end up making the third out in the five-run seventh, but this was not an out for which you really blame Alex Cole. He ended up making the third out and trying to score from third base on a pitch that got away from Padres catcher Brett Sullivan. But Sullivan then made an incredible diving tag to just barely get Cole on his right cleat for the third out. Uh, tremendous play by Brett Sullivan. Uh, Alex Cole on Thursday as an at starting center fielder and number seven batter, one for four with the bunt single. He also drew a walk. And then Bear Ruiz in this Nats five-run seventh, a pinch tie-breaking RBI infield single on a well-hit ball off Padres second baseman Jake Cronenworth for a 6-5 Nats lead. From down 5-1 to up 6-5 via this five-run seventh. What a job by the Nats in this five-run seventh inning. And by the way, the man for whom Cape Ruiz pinch hit, Riley Adams, he had another good offensive game. He is not playing much this season, but when he does play, he is producing. Adams on Thursday as an at starting catcher and number eight batter, one for one with a triple and two two-out walks. Adams in the bottom of the six, a one-out opposite field triple to the right field corner on an 0-2 pitch. Uh, the Nats for this game, 12 hits and four walks, went six for 15 with runners in scoring position. Uh, also in this 8-6 loss to the Padres on Thursday, another bad outing for starting pitcher Jake Irvin. Uh, you wonder if his spot in the Nats rotation is in real jeopardy now. I'd like to see him stay in the rotation, but Irvin on Thursday had problems for a third consecutive start. He allowed two runs in four innings. He only gave up two hits, but one of them uh, was a two-run homer. Uh, he also gave up a single. Uh, he issued four walks and a hit-by-pitch. He did record four strikeouts, but get this. Jake Irvin on Thursday, over 76 pitches, threw more balls than strikes. That is exceptionally rare. A starting pitcher in a major league game throwing more balls than strikes. Irvin, over 76 pitches, 37 strikes versus 39 balls. And Irvin committed a throwing error. Uh, he, in the top of the second, allowed two runs on a two-out pinch single by Brandon Dixon to left field, and then a two-out two-run opposite field home run by Trent Grisham to left field for a 2-1 Padres lead. And how about the top of the third? Now, Irvin tossed a scoreless top of the third, but he did this despite beginning the inning by issuing three consecutive walks and committing a throwing error on an errant pickoff throw, although uh, things got weird on the throw as the uh, intended target of the throw, shortstop C.J. Abrams, uh, was obstructed by the runner on second base, Fernando Tatis Jr. But this was Davey Martinez during his postgame session with reporters on Thursday evening on Jake Irvin. Yeah, he was, I mean, our defense saved him, right? I mean, we turned the double, big double play for him, base loaded. Um, but, you know, four innings, 76 pitches, um, we got to get him in the strike zone. We got to, he's got to be more consistent throwing strikes, you know. Um, look, guys, like I said this before, guys got to bat for a reason, you know. But let, let your defense play as he did. You know, we, we uh, got, you know, turned double play for him, but, um, you know, um, the walks, you know, the walks are going are to get you. And, uh, you know, so we got to get him back in the strike zone. Yes, you do. Uh, Jake Irvin's previous start was a disaster. Uh, 8-6 loss 
to the Detroit Tigers at Nationals Park last Friday night, May 19th. Irvin in that game allowed six runs, four earned in two and two-thirds innings. And then also with the Nats bullpen on Thursday. So for the game, five Nats relievers combined to allow six runs in five innings. Hunter Harvey had his problems in giving up three runs in the top of the ninth. But Andres Machado in the top of the fifth allowed three runs on a double, two singles, a walk, and a balk. The big blow was a two-out, two-run opposite field double by Rubnet Odor to left field for a 5-1 Padres lead. Uh, Mason Thompson did toss a scoreless top of the sixth. Thaddeus Ward uh, did toss a scoreless top of the seventh. Uh, Wow, (laughs) crazy game at Nationals Park on Thursday. Next up for the Nats, a three-game series at the Kansas City Royals, who are awful. Uh, The Royals have the second-worst record in the majors. Uh, Game one, Friday night at 8-10, Patrick Corbin will be the Nats' starting pitcher. Game two, Saturday afternoon at 4-10, Josiah Gray will be the Nats' starting pitcher. And game three, Sunday afternoon at 2-10, Mackenzie Gore will be the Nats' starting pitcher. So the Orioles on Thursday night concluded a six-game American League East road trip uh, that consisted of a three-game series at the Toronto Blue Jays and a three-game series at the New York Yankees, Uh, two teams that historically have uh, done some harm to the O's. Well, the O's went five and one on this road trip. Not bad. A 3-1 win at the Yankees on Thursday night to win two or three games in that series. And two again, Joe Angel, the in the win column. And the Orioles again in the win column. Oh, yes, Joe. Oh, yes, the win column. Uh, the O's now are 33-17. and 17. That is the second best record in Major League Baseball. The O's now have a four-game lead on the Yankees for second in the American League East. And how about this? The O's now are a sparkling 18-9 and nine on the road. The O's in this 2023 regular season have twice as many road wins as the team has road losses. Uh, here was O's manager, Brandon Hyde, during his postgame session with reporters on Thursday night on the O's going 5-1 and one on this six-game road trip. It's definitely two tough places to play. I think we showed, uh, you know, uh, just a gritty team. I mean, the way we won, too. None of them were easy wins. <laughs> um, just really proud of our club, honestly. This, these are two really tough places to play against two excellent teams. And um, just we played well in so many areas. Uh, but we're pitching. We're pitching right now. And Kyle Gibson was, that was a masterful performance. Um, so, yeah, huge series win here and move on tomorrow. Ah, yes, Kyle Gibson. Uh, So the O's in splitting the first two games of this three-game series at the Yankees did not get good starting pitching. Uh, Kyle Bradish in the 6-5, 10-inning loss on Tuesday night, four runs in five innings. Tyler Wells in the 9-6 win on Wednesday night, five runs in five innings. But Kyle Gibson in this 3-1 win on Thursday night was terrific. Seven scoreless innings. He gave up just two hits both of which were singles. He did issue four walks. He did record just three strikeouts. He over 96 pitches, only had 56 strikes versus 40 balls. But the run prevention, which is what matters the most, was excellent. Again, seven scoreless innings. And this now is back-to-back terrific starts for Kyle Gibson. He in the 6-2 win at the Blue Jays last Friday night, May 19th, allowed one run 
in seven innings. Uh, Kyle Gibson now in this regular season, 11 starts, ERA a 382. Brandon Hyde during his postgame session with reporters on Thursday night on what Kyle Gibson has meant to the O's this season. So many things. Um, just there's you know he's got big time intangibles with veteran leadership and and uh, our guys really rely on him for uh, just because he's got great experiences and been on winning teams and um, you know show what kind of player and pitcher he is tonight. Um, but they, uh, a lot of guys look up to him and, and he's been amazing. What was he doing so well that was allowing him to have those kind of results again tonight? Well, I just see he got the two seamer going. He threw some good sliders. Just uh, like. Like in Toronto, just a great pitch mix of just being unpredictable, um, keeping the ball in the corners, down by the knees, you know, tough lineups to pitch to, and and, uh, and getting ground ball double plays when we needed them. We played really well defensively again, and so uh, that was a great start by him. Yes, it was. Uh, the O's this past December signed Kyle Gibson as a free agent, a one-year, $10 million contract. Uh, now, Gibson in the 2021 regular season was outstanding for the Texas Rangers. Uh, 113 innings over 19 starts, an ERA at 287. The Rangers on July 30th, 2021, traded Gibson to the Philadelphia Phillies. He struggled for the Phillies. Uh, Gibson over the 2021 and 2022 regular seasons with the Phillies, an ERA of 506. But the Phillies' defense over those two seasons was horrendous. I mean, you heard Brandon Hyde reference how good the Orioles' defense was on Thursday night. Defense matters when it comes to how a pitcher does. And the O's have gotten very good at maximizing player performance in general. And they're doing that with Kyle Gibson. This is part of this turnaround for the O's. They're all-in on analytics approach has gotten the team to a point at which the team can take a guy who has struggled and get him to a much better place. The O's have done this with multiple players over the last two seasons now. Uh, Two Orioles relievers on Thursday night combined to allow one run in two innings. Uh, The run was given up by Yanir Cano. Yes, he gave up a run, just the second run that he has allowed since the O's recalled him from AAA Norfolk on April 14th. The Cano on Thursday night allowed a run in the bottom of the ninth inning. Uh, But Mike Bauman, uh, he on Thursday night tossed a perfect bottom of the eighth with two strikeouts. Uh, The O's on Thursday night won despite an underwhelming offensive game, uh, had just the three runs, a total to seven hits, which were comprised of two doubles and five singles. The O's did work four walks. Anthony Santander, uh, he is the Orioles' starting right fielder and number three batter, got on base four times. Uh, He went three for three with an RBI single, two other singles, and a walk. Uh, Santander is having an excellent month of May. Anthony Santander for this month of May, a batting average of 329, an on-base percentage of 427, and a slugging percentage of 598. Uh, Austin Hayes, he on Thursday night as the Orioles starting left fielder and number six batter, one for four with a two-run double. Uh, Hayes and an Orioles two-run eighth, a one-out two-run opposite field double off the top of the right field wall for a 3-0 Orioles lead. Uh, That two-run double was nearly a three-run homer. Uh, Hayes for this regular season, number two among qualified Orioles players in OPS at 834. You can always email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Email from Jerry Moore, late night on Thursday night, writes Jerry, Al, the Yankees were hot, and then the mighty O's came to town. Go O's! Uh, They are playing great ball. Their rebuild has succeeded in three years We'll see about the Nats. <laughs> uh, thank you for the email, Jerry. Uh, well, the Nats rebuild may take less than another three years, maybe a lot less. 
Uh, but yes, the O's are having a tremendous season so far. We'll see what happens over the course of the rest of this season, obviously. But when it comes to what has happened, the O's are thriving. The job that Orioles executive vice president and general manager Mike Elias has done in rebuilding this team, just phenomenal. And boy, (laughs) is he making the critics of the rebuild look foolish. All of the complainers about the Orioles' rebuild, all of the whiners about the Orioles' rebuild, oh, they're tanking, oh, why are they doing this, oh, this is not the right way to do things. No, actually, it is. (laughs) Actually, it is, okay? And when I'm talking about the critics of the rebuild, the complainers regarding the rebuild, the whiners regarding the rebuild, I'm mainly talking about people in the media, okay? Because many, if not most, Orioles fans understood what Mike Elias was doing. It actually was people in the media, especially the national media, who, for whatever reason, didn't seem to have a firm grasp on what the O's were doing, even though this is what the Chicago Cubs did in route to winning the 2016 World Series. This is what the Houston Astros did in route to winning the 2017 World Series. And I know, the Astros cheated, okay? But you get the idea. Uh, Next up for the O's, yet another big series, a three-game series against the American League West-leading Texas Rangers at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Uh, The O's and Rangers have the second and third best records in the majors, respectively. Uh, Game one, Friday night at 7.05, Grayson Rodriguez will be the Orioles' starting pitcher. Game two, Saturday afternoon at 4.05, Dean Kramer will be the Orioles' starting pitcher. And game three, Sunday afternoon at 1.35, Kyle Bradish will be the Orioles' starting pitcher. And that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. There will be a show for Monday, uh, despite it being Memorial Day, a Monday show, episode 582. Love a lot for you on the Commanders and on the rest of our Washington, D.C. area sports weekend. Uh, the Nationals this weekend have a three-game series at the Kansas City Royals. The Orioles this weekend have a three-game series against the Texas Rangers at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Have a great Uh, next few days into your weekend, and I'll talk to you on the final day of your Memorial Day weekend, Monday. Sustainably contending.